Hello. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going, John Roderick? Oh, things are things are looking up. Yeah? How? Why? What happened? Oh, well, no, actually, not at all, but it... <laughs> <laughs> it's considered polite in our culture to oh. always have something positive to say. Right. You don't want to start off a conversation by saying things are just as middling as always. Yeah. You want to say, yes, amazing. <laughs> today, today is the first day of the rest of our life. Yeah. Lives. Life has given us lemons. <laughs> and what do we do? Suck on them and make a sour face? No. Make lemonade. Yeah. <clears throat> At least that's my policy starting <laughs> starting starting off today. How about you? Uh, yeah, no, I like that, and I realize how often you know I was watching a show the other day about how women are more inclined to say that they're sorry than men, and Canadians are more inclined <laughs> not, to not, s- in, not not in my first hand experience. Well. <laughs> 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 well, they're more men, than men. You were saying, that, you were they're, they're supposed to be more apologetic than men statistically, and that, for example, if you're walking through the office and you're looking down at your phone, and, and a woman is walking the opposite way, looking down at her phone, and you bump into each other, the woman will be more inclined to say, "Oh, I'm sorry," or if you know, if, if you're in line for coffee and it's unclear who's the next one in line, the woman is more likely to say, I'm sorry, uh, you go ahead or something, something like that. Even though the man would want to be traditionally chivalrous or something that, that it's more, the women are more ready to apologize and take blame. And they, they did some study where they were actually like checking how many times a, a woman says, I'm sorry in a given day. And for men, it was like, they may say it once a day. Women say it 30 times a day or something mm-hmm. extreme like that. Did they? I I would love to see the. I'm 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 picturing that it's kind of a shoulder mounted, um, like sorry, <laughs> it's like a steady cam, like a like a sorry measurer. Yeah, sort of like a Ghostbusters backpack or something <laughs> that that the study participants were wearing. Right. Uh, and every time they said, "I'm sorry," it like it made a kind of grinding sound, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there there was a Canadian aspect to this study. Is that? That's my own. Uh, that's actually comes from my own personal experience. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, they do say they're they're sorry. They're sorry. Sorry. They do say that a lot. I will that's put one of, <laughs> one of their signature moves. <laughs> we have we have show notes for this show. Uh so people in, in who, advance, can you read them to me? And, and no, 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 nothing like that. But if people want to go and like see the links, I will. I will put here's here's one of the research articles that I found from the Association for Psychological Science: Why Women <laughs> Apologize More Than Men, Gender Differences, and Thresholds for Perceiving Offensive Behavior. I'll put things like that into the show notes so that the listeners can can go, and those will be at five by five tv slash roadwork slash one. Which Has is this exciting. show started already? This or, is the are, show. Yeah, this are is we, it. Are we, we're we're in it. This is we've begun. I mean, we can we could start over. <laughs> Some kind of ABC News sports. Yeah. 
That's like a current affair in the like eighties, nineties time period. That little that was good times. But that's also kind of a who wants to be a millionaire sound. Well, shouldn't we before we launch right into the gender differences in apologizing? Right. Which I, you know, which I'm. I'm guessing it's going to be a major theme of the show, but before we jump right in, shouldn't we introduce our show to people? It's a, this is a, this is a new, this is a new enterprise. It is a new enterprise. How do we introduce something? Well, the thing is, you know more about this than I do. I've only ever had one podcast where, uh, I mean, my impression is that you have 60 podcasts. No, no, come on. 16. 16. I have I have a few that I do much less than I used to do, but I mean it's our thing. We do it together. Let me ask you this: arm in arm at peak podcast, <laughs> how many podcasts were you doing? That's a great question. I mean, I feel like there were times where I was doing more than, in some cases, more than two a day, but two a day. So I feel like ten was wow. the most. I know, I know. The ten was the most I was probably doing in a given week. I feel like two, that's safe. To say. Two a day. That's incredible. It was a lot. Uh, so well, let me let me ask you this. Let but me Larry, ask- Larry said I was overexposed, so I cut down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let, let me just let me put this to you. This is a new podcast that you are introducing into the world. What makes you feel like this is a podcast that? I mean, you you once were doing ten a ten a day. Now you have winnowed that back, mm. and now you are beginning a new podcast. What is going on? Why why introduce a new podcast into a world of podcasts? Right, because there aren't enough podcasts already in the world. <laughs> a lot of podcasts, yeah. and this is a you know this is one this is this is one where you and I, two middle aged white guys, right. are talking to each other long distance. Why? Yeah. Why? Dan yeah. Benjamin? Well, I've, you know, as, as I've slowly become familiar with your work, um, I have found that I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the stuff that you have said, written about, sung about, hmm. and admired you from afar. Mm-hmm. Multimodal. Right. Uh, multimodal communication. Yeah. Found that I liked your stuff, liked you as a person, and, and above all, loved a show that you do with our mutual friend Merlin Mann called uh, Roderick on the line and yes. got, I, I wanted to, to, if, if, if we're coming clean about things, let's go, let's go all the way. Let's say what we need to say. I intentionally did not listen to that show for a long time. And it's yeah. not, it's not simply because I was, uh, I was jealous that Merlin was having so much fun with, with someone else. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't the main part. Hmm. Uh, hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> shared your uh, your reticence, and also have been waiting to listen to the show. <laughs> right, literally millions of people. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people who haven't yet heard have heard been the show. Waiting, have been waiting and waiting. It's it's on their to do list. I hope, yeah. I presume, bucket list. It's on their bucket list. One of these days, they're going to get around to listening to Roderick on the line. But you eventually did. I did. And the reason that, that I, I, I was, for some reason, I felt like I should save it. I don't know what I was saving it for. Yeah, but sure. It was your prison podcast. Yeah. You were saving yeah. it for when you <laughs> sailed your sailboat around the world. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it was. No, I, I mean, I saw, I saw the movie with, um, 
with, with the guy on the boat where he's just on the boat and things just keep getting worse and worse for him until he until they can't <laughs> you, get anywhere. You know, this is a common it's a common plot device for for films. Yeah. Guy, guy on a boat and things keep getting worse. But you're talking about the Robert Redford Robert Redford film. He, you know, he yeah. lost his hearing in one ear doing that movie. Really? Yes. Uh, he apparently in all the scenes where uh, spoiler alert, water gets into the boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, where water gets in the boat, apparently in some filming some of those scenes, something happened where water got into his ear and and didn't come out. And this led to some kind of infection. The guy's like 70, 80 years old. Yeah. But it got into his ear and didn't come out or something. And that led to hearing loss in his ear. Permanent. You would, you would think that Robert Redford could afford the best medical care and that that a team of doctors would have prevented him from getting swimmer's ear. But in fact, we are so vulnerable. Humans are so vulnerable that even Robert Redford, Redford can, can suffer such an indignity. Right. I'm, I know I found an, an article here at um, hearingdoc.com. <laughs> <laughs> are you doing this research in advance right or now no right now just, yeah that's incredible you are so good on computers yeah. uh this is under the category uh, on the site a hearing doc uh hearing news mm-hmm. from the <laughs> i'm surprised that <laughs> i do subscribe to that i'm surprised i haven't you missed it, go ahead robert redford's new film all is lost uh reportedly he yeah uh, he insisted on doing most of his own stunts and during an excessive water deluge suffered a 60 percent hearing loss in one ear and uh, that's the whole article. That's awful. But yeah, that's the story of that. So anyway, um, th- how did I start on well, that? So that movie, <laughs> that movie had a profound effect on me too. Did it? Uh, yeah, because you know this. This is a that's a that's a prime that's a prime motivator, right? What what? Well, how am I going to spend the rest of my life? Well, at some point, I assume that I'm going to sail a sailboat around the world yes, by myself. 100% on board with this. And I've told this to, to my wife and she thinks she has a, a fear of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Justifiably. And I've told her many, many, many times that like an Eskimo, I plan to sail out to sea and never return. I see, you know, uh-huh. and I haven't given her a time frame for that. Uh huh. Correct. Could happen any time. <laughs> right. She's assuming it's only when you're old and infirm, but <laughs> you could leave on your fiftieth birthday, right? That or sooner. Who knows? Things yeah. don't go well for a couple of weeks. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, so but that was yes, a tremendously profound movie uh, for me, and it's something that that as things get worse for him, I love to see that you know how calmly he handles everything and how you know, dedicated he is to, to the task and uh, different outcomes of the movie. I don't know if we should spoil the movie of what does or does no, not happen. No, no, I think, I, think, uh, I think we should we should let people watch it themselves and have their own, uh, their own experience of, the, of, of this idea. Because I, I think it's something that everybody... The well, man, this, man versus nature. It's one of the most classic... It's, it's a classic idea. Story. Right. I think that the way you got onto that was that you were describing... Your when process. I would listen to the podcast, when I would yes. listen to your podcast. Right. <laughs> so at some point, Merlin had that, to... <laughs> incidentally, that's one of my superpowers, <laughs> to remember w- what we were talking about. 
Uh, and I very seldom use it on my other podcast, but it actually is it is a superpower that I have access to. Well, I always I can pretty much always get back to the jumping off point. Well, if you are <laughs> if you're podcasting with me, I'm sure it'll come in handy. Okay, good. Um so you were going to be subbing for Merlin on an episode of Back to Work, which is the mm-hmm. the show that I do with Merlin. Right, an ex- an extraordinary for those Listeners who are not familiar with Back to Work, my my impression of it is that it's an exceptionally <laughs> successful productivity podcast. Right. It's about barriers and constraints and things mm-hmm. like that. Life hacking. <laughs> Life hacking. And with Merlin as a productivity guru. Right. Guru. And he uh, and I have done this show for, gosh, I guess it, we're up to 233 episodes of it. And we started doing the show in February of 2011, or maybe it was even before that. No, it was January of 2011. So, so it was it was originally about Palm Pilots. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, which was the style at the time. Yeah, you guys were hacking like the the Mac Lisa. <laughs> yeah, and that's the Mac Lisa. Trying to figure out like how to get how to optimize your Lisas. Right. Yeah. But we we've had a good a good time and we're still doing the show just like he's still doing the other show with you, but at some point he had to go on one of these trips or things that he does and uh and and i was very hesitant because i really at this point i had started listening to your other show and i thought man this this is good this guy this guy could 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 totally fill in for merlin and i Mm -hmm. suggested it to him but i was very nervous about it because you know like you don't want to like in some way i felt like you were his oh i am his (laughs) very much i am merlin's pet yes and what you do outside of outside of the scope of being on the show with him is, you know, that's that's not something I I could ever talk talk about or touch even. And and he said, no, you don't, should definitely do the show with John. Do the show with John. And uh, and we did. And we had a good time. And then I believe we met at you went uh, to XOXO and did a performance there. And we decided impromptu that it would be fun to have lunch. And so we met and had lunch and talked and I felt like we hit it off because I hugged you. It was, it was very fun. Yeah. It was very fun. I was surprised that, uh, I was surprised that, that we were, that we were very different sizes. <laughs> it seemed like there was almost no item of your clothing that, socks. Would, that would have worked for me. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure if I could wear your socks. Maybe. What are you about? What are you about? Six, six, four? Well, you know, I keep shrinking. <laughs> <laughs> because my spine is compressing from all the from all the impacts. Yeah. You know, all the times I've had to jump off of a low retaining wall <laughs> and little by little it I've lost about an inch. Ugh. Yeah, it's not it's not so good. Oof. So what uh, what you at, at your at your peak what were you doing height wise? I was 63 and some change okay. at one point. Okay. Uh, I'm very good at a, guessing height then, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, you are. For a long time, I was 6'3 and some change. And now, the last time I was at... And then, so I went to a doctor at one point, and they measured me and said that I was 6... What did they say? Something like 6'1 and some change. And I was like, your <laughs> instruments are not calibrated. And, you know, and they're like a medical office. They just scoff. Right. Uh, but then I went to a doctor more recently, and they said I was six two and some change, six two and a half. And I was were upset. you standing like fully? Yeah, yeah. Upright? Then, 
I know how to be measured. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I was I was upset. But you know, six one and three quarters—that was just unacceptable. You, I I cannot possibly have lost two inches of height, no matter how many retaining walls I've jumped off of. Right. But and so six two and some you know six two and a half. I was like, ah, it's it's the old thing where I'd already had a traumatic experience of being measured improperly. And now I was being given back some of that lost height. And I was like, okay, I'll, fine. I'll take it. I don't, you know, I don't know. I I've done a lot of walking and maybe uh, all the padding in the bottom of my foot has been compressed Oh, or something. Like it's my, a foot thing. It's not a spine thing. Or maybe I lost, uh, maybe I lost an inch in my ankles or something. I'm just, I'm just not sure where I could it's have lost collect- an inch. Collectively from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Is the yeah. other thing. Sure. A little bit of swelling in my scalp probably went down. Uh, a little bit of, I lost some, some, uh, some compression, you know, compression in my vertebra. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's just some general crumbling of the bone throughout my body, but an inch, I mean, that's considerable, <laughs> especially for someone who, <clears throat> so I, you know, I think about myself as a big person, not, not necessarily a tall one, but, just sort of big, a big person. Well, big boned. Yeah, I just I fill up I fill up the allotted space for a person. That's right? the thing. A, people like when when if you describe someone as tall, you kind of imagine them as a sort of like a lanky, mm-hmm. lanky. Whereas you're you're just a, a big imposing kind of a presence of a, of a guy. Yeah, it feels like there's a you know there's a there is a well for instance on a tour bus. If you are, if you ever are in a situation where you're in a band and and you're touring on a bus, the bunks in a tour bus are made for a for a generally sized person, hmm. because tour buses have to accommodate musicians of all kinds and hockey players and whoever else. Uh, but when I climb into a bunk on a tour bus, I fill up the entire area, <laughs> and it's very uncomfortable for me because it's uncomfortable for everybody to travel on a tour bus, yeah. but, but there is no room for me to even crack my knuckles because I would, in order to do that, I have to spill out of the, of the bunk. Like so do that, things like, do things seem small to you? Like if you pick up like a teacup, does it seem like, a, like something from a, like a dollhouse? I, I do. I do like, I mean, the thing is I'm not grotesquely large, but, but, um, I mean, certainly when I get onto a when I get onto a normal airplane, and I don't want to make this an airplane podcast, yeah. But when I get onto an airplane, it does feel like everything, it, it, like I am being gaslighted a little bit, and everything has been shrunk by fifteen percent. And I sit down, and it's just like, can this seriously be the amount of room allocated to a person? Do you go? Um, do you go over? Like go over the edges of. The seat, like, are you using both armrests and then you're into the other person's seat as well? Well, I'm hyper conscious of other people's space because I am an uh, because I'm an introverted person mm-hmm. and, and an INFJ or whatever. Yeah, and so I do not want to elbow into someone else's space. I certainly, if I sit next to another big guy and he starts to try and take over the armrest, yeah, I, this will not stand. I will, <laughs> I will battle him. I will battle him for a 12 hour flight for occupation of one half of my, 
my allotted one half of that armrest. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to like crowd into somebody else's armrest area. But like if you and I were sitting and I was in the one seat and you were in the next seat next to me, mm-hmm. I've got room in, in my seat. Oh, I know. You're just swimming in it. Yeah. Over there. Would you, would you feel like, like maybe you could take some of that? Like, would you feel like, well, he's not using the space. I need it. No, I'll just let my arm kind of drift into that, the space in his seat. I have a, I have a friend who is a, that I've done quite a bit of traveling with, who is also a very big guy. And he does have that sort of sensibility that he, because he's big, he is entitled to, he needs it more space. He, he does need it, but there's a difference between needing it and being entitled to it. Mm. And so when the person in front of him leans the seat back, (laughs) right, he's in, he's in there. He gets furious about it. He, but he's also a passive aggressive person. So he, he, he doesn't tap the guy on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, can you not do that? He just kind of like every time he shifts around in his seat, he makes sure to knee the, the person oh, in front yeah. of him in the back, yeah. you know, uh, as hard as he can. But I feel like you have paid the same amount of money for your seat as I have. So you are entitled to use that space however you like. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to set up a bunch of, uh, little Hummel figurines mm-hmm. along your side of the, of the armrest and, and talk to them and play with them throughout the course of the flight. While I am, you know, like I, I go into flying, I go into it fully aware. I know, I know how it is. So I'm, I can't blame you, my seatmate for this, for this problem. And in fact, as we know, you can blame no one yeah. except global capitalism. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing you can be mad at. And the only way you can express anger at global capitalism is to tweet about it. <laughs> The most ineffectual way, either that or to go to Bernie Sanders uh, rallies and and wave a a hand painted sign. Right. Um, Those are your options. But do you feel like do you feel like you have to eat more? Like, are you eating more food just to sustain the size? You know, is it like an elephant that needs like a half ton of vegetation a day compared to the. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you saw what I eat. You would be well, walk me you, through it because I actually you, had you a topic. Blanch. I had a topic for today, and my topic was um, what was was rituals hmm. and routines, rituals and routines. Uh, so I do not have very many rituals in the sense of uh, that I do the same thing every time. But I am forty six years old, almost forty seven years old, and. I have persisted in eating pretty much any and everything I want. Um, well, well past the point that I should have taken some charge over my diet. Right. I, I did a couple of years ago stop eating gluten. Would, yeah, was, you told me you said you were you were gluten free until the day that I met you, and the day before that had been your birthday. And you said you've been eating a lot of pizza. And I yeah. said, well, how do you feel? And you said, pretty awful. Yeah, it makes me feel bad. And so now, I'm, now I am eating gluten, although I recognize that it's bad for me and it <laughs> makes me feel bad. Okay. But, you know, I'm always trying to moderate to manage my, my psychological uh, uh, space or my, the, the many halls of my psychological Versailles. <laughs> I'm constantly trying to, 
move the furniture around in these big mirrored rooms uh, to make them seem more livable. And, um, and it, so part of that is food, but I absolutely should have a long time ago needed to start watching what I eat because it's just one of those things that happens to people. It's a normal person thing that at a certain point you can't just keep eating huge banquets at one o'clock in the morning without suffering enormous consequences. But yeah. I have a, but I have a kind of physicality and a constitution that allows it, I guess, I mean, it's hard to measure because I've never really gotten a handle on it, but, but I still, I still take a great, I take great solace in food and, um, and I do not, I do not eat uh, the, the USDA food pyramid. <laughs> if you took that food pyramid and you turned it upside down yeah. and then you cut the bottom off of it so that it could stand instead of, instead of balance on a point, uh, That's that would you. be, that'd be, it, yeah, that, that would kind of be how, <laughs> how I've always approached food. I don't, I mean, you know, you're honest about it. I, but you're not, I don't want people who haven't seen you in person to come away with the idea that you're, you're what I would, I wouldn't put you in the category of like, I would meet you and be like, wow, he's like a heavy dude. Like I wouldn't, well, like, you don't strike I mean, me. like physically it, it, on the scale. Yes. But like, you're not, I don't want people to think that you're, I, you don't seem out of shape. I definitely want people to think that I'm a heavy dude <laughs> in the sort of, in the super fly sense. Right. Cause I am definitely a heavy dude <laughs> yeah. in that sense. Uh, but <laughs> no, that's the thing. I mean, it, you, you, uh, there are lots of people like me who can absorb, who can absorb sort of the nutrient content. I mean, I'm a, I'm like a blue whale. <laughs> I, I take in so much right. nutrition, uh, and the form of like the krill of 10,000 donuts or whatever. Uh, and it's just not, it's, it's not clear. I, you know what it is? I just have a density. I have an, I have an extraordinary density. Um, a little bit, just a little teeny piece of me <laughs> has, has the gravity of, a, of, you know, many planets. Right. Yeah. But you know, we are different uh, heights. But I don't want people, what I'm saying is I don't want them to, people to think you're disproportionate in one way or another. You're, the correct proportions for someone it's it's just as if someone just scaled an an average sized person just scaled them up just a few percentage maybe 10%. Yeah. This is this is the thing though. I mean, if you like uh this is because because God is hilarious and full of pranks. <laughs> and so if you took a picture if you take a picture of Dan Benjamin, you look like a you are a perfectly normal person until you meet me. And then <laughs> and then no, and the thing is, you can go into stores and buy things that fit you. You oh, yeah. can get into, you sit down in a chair and you say, what a comfortable chair. You go through doorways and feel like there's plenty of space in this doorway for me to go through it carrying a bag. And then, and I, the thing is, I have, I have friends that are a lot bigger than me that I can only imagine, like, even, even if they pay the premium to sit in the big seats, that's not enough. You know, it, it, I, uh, where are you meeting these people? 
or is it just a Seattle thing? Well, are they like it, ice fishermen? I mean, one of the one of the things about being a, a traveling entertainer is that you do meet a lot of people. Yeah, and um, and in the course of that meeting a lot of people, some of them become your friends. A great many of them, actually. I mean, statistically, proportionately, I probably have as many friends as a normal person, but I know so many more people that I end up having a lot more friends. Right. And, uh, and some of those friends end up being huge. They are, they are large people. I also know a lot of really, really, really tiny people. People <laughs> all across the <laughs> wide spectrum, which is how I can, how I can conclude uh, that God is pranking us all the time. Yeah, um, because he's because the, the 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 variation exceeds like what is necessary and goes over into the into the realm of like the this is impossible that this little very small person and this very large person are the same species mm-hmm. it's it's it it's excessive and into the realm of comedy <laughs> Well, I just remember being being struck by your size, and also at the time you had the finger in the in the little white uh, sling. Well, I had a finger in a cast, right? Yeah. That, which is another hilarious. Yeah, that, that's quite a hilarious accessory. Yeah, yep. And at the time, you weren't wearing. You know, now you're sort of always in in like a, a, a suit or a sport coat. But at the time you showed up, I think you're wearing like a blue a blue t shirt. Mm-hmm. And you had the, you were holding your finger kind of up, curving up mm-hmm. all the time. And it just, the white against the blue, you know, was striking. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, you know, and I was surprised that that didn't catch on. Yeah. I was surprised <laughs> that look. more people didn't start splinting their index finger. <laughs> and because it really, it's very emphatic. Did right? it heal okay? Is it all right? I don't know, frankly. Really? Like it doesn't work? Oh, it works. It works. It's just, it's been a year yeah. since I broke my finger and it still is stiff and, and, um, and I favor it. You know, I, I have a good friend who is a flat track motorcycle racer <laughs> and he broke his leg pretty severely earlier this year. And he's same age as I am. Mm hmm. And I said, you know, how's the leg? Is it healing up? And he was like, mm, not really. And in in his um, sort of resigned tone, I heard, I heard uh, the first awareness of mortality wow. that I'd ever heard from this guy. He's one of these people that was all he was going to live forever, and yeah. he was always going to be young and and. He was going to be jumping motorcycles at 65 right. like Steve McQueen, never die. And, and in this, like, mm, not really what, what he, what we both understood was that he had broken a limb past the point where healing was something you could count on. Right. And now he was healing. Sure. More or less he was healing, but he was never going to be the same. I hate that. It was terrible. And, and uh, this broken finger was the first real, I, I mean, I, ha- I have had, I've sustained some injuries that I never recovered from, but the, re- the, the failure to recover was, was, uh, 
you know, I, I could attribute some aspect of it to the fact that I didn't rehabilitate myself properly mm. or I hadn't, you know, or I injured myself, re-injured myself uh, on top of a, of an, an older injury. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I didn't come all the way back from some earlier uh, slights, but this one was one where I was diligent about rehabilitating and it, and, and ultimately like I'm just past the, you know, my, I have macular degeneration and I can no longer eat. I can no longer drink coffee at 11 PM. Right. And it's, and I have to monitor the amount of Sri Racha I put on things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now I, I broke my finger and it's always going to be a little stiff. Yeah. And it's just like, come on, this is bullshit in my mind. I am only just beginning what I imagine is the start of a thousand year Reich. <laughs> yeah. But in my body, I am already showing innumerable signs of irre irre irrevocable decay. And that's just so annoying and feels like, and not only is it annoying, but so commonplace. It's so regular and yeah. normal. Yep. Th th that too is is boggling how do we do it how do we humans manage this not very well i think well you know it, it's always been really i think until like late 30s early 40s it's always been very easy for me to very quickly recover from things that seemed you know i i'm fortunately i've never been through anything in in you know like even like your friend with you know really severely breaking a limb or something like that but are you, you just, cautious dan i mean i wouldn't say i'm more cautious than the average person you're averagely cautious yeah i mean give me well let's roll the roll that back what is your definition of cautious i have jumped off of a retaining wall but not for a very long time mm-hmm mm -hmm. So I mean I'm I'm I I I feel like I'm tremendously more cautious than you. And maybe maybe in the scheme of things I I would put myself on the more cautious side. Would you catch a baseball open-handed? Who if, threw, if, who threw it? If a baseball if somebody hit a foul ball and you were sitting in the stands at a at a Oh yeah, absolutely game, yes. Yeah, sure, for put sure. Put your hand out. Uh, yeah, 100%. Ball. Okay. 100%. Do you late at night when you're driving home? Yeah, and no one else is on the roads, and you come to a stoplight. Oh, and the stoplight is. I'm stopping. You're gonna stop, totally. right? But, yeah. But then you're sitting at the stoplight, and you feel like I'm gonna wait it, it out. No, I'm gonna wait it out. You're gonna wait that stoplight out. Yeah. You already you anticipate where I'm going with this, and yep. you you're gonna sit at that stoplight. If it's a malfunctioning <laughs> stoplight, you will be there in the morning. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, I've got, I've got some limits, mm -hmm. but I'm definitely going to, I'm going to wait. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt for a good minute. Okay. All right. Good. Good. You would, would you stop? Uh, I frequently do not stop at stoplights, even in the middle of the day. Really? That's uh, bad. I, I make a, I make a, I make a, I appraise the situation as I approach the intersection and I make a, I make an independent decision. Like the light is a suggestion. Not a suggestion, but the light is there for a reason, and it's controlled by, you know, it's part of a system. Right. 
And that system... You, you yourself are also part of a system, I would say. I'm part of a system. We're all part of this system. <laughs> and and the, the light is there, and it's doing a job, and I respect the job it's doing. Yeah. And I respect the people who are, who, who are there to make sure that... Do you that, look down upon the people who stop it? That- oh, no, not at all. Okay. I'm grateful for them. But I also do not feel like... I do not feel that a stoplight... That the, 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 it isn't the stoplight that has authority, just as it is not the police officer that has authority. It is the system that has authority, and it is, and that authority is vested in the system by us and by our agreement. And so, that understanding, you know, enables you to make reasonable and prudent decisions mm-hmm. to sometimes take some of that authority back for a moment or two and say, I, I am vesting in myself the authority to ignore this stoplight because of reasons, because <clears throat> I can see four miles in every direction and there's no one else here. Mm-hmm. And, and it is somewhat of an indignity to be stopped by a machine uh, yeah, <laughs> which has no self awareness and is stopping me only because it's on a program. When I can, when I can make an independent determination for myself that it is very safe for me to continue making progress along this road, right? And so that amount, I mean, it, you know, it's a flexible amount of autonomy that I have to <clears throat> that I grant myself within an overall system that I am fully vested in right i do believe that for the most part it is prudent to obey the police but that the police are agents of a collective agreement and in and of themselves do not they are not power centers themselves they are agents they're representatives of a power that you know that is our mutual uh, decision to promote peace, not steal from each other, and stop at stoplights and so forth. Right. So yeah, I do. I I retain I retain to myself a certain amount of agency that maybe well that I hope everyone reserves for themselves. Right. I don't I don't flaunt it. You have to retain a little bit of of your own um, your own freedom, and I think that that contributes to. Is it like an, an act of rebellion in a way? No, no, no. I think it. I, th- I think more to the point, it is like a. It's a. Um, in a way, it it shows or 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 it makes my acquiescence to the larger body of rules mm-hmm. more informed and more more actual because it isn't reflexive it isn't i'm not uh i'm not doing it out of rote like it's it's more informed and in a sense that you're saying that that, that the fact that you're going along with it it adds somehow more credibility to the to the rule or the suggestion to begin with because you're following it 
Well, uh, yeah, that, 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 that an, an awareness or an acknowledgement that these things are not imposed upon us by an, by an authority we can't comprehend, hmm. but are really mutual agreements and mutual agreements that, that, you know, that are invested, that I, I am invested in and not a slave to. Not an unthinking um, pawn, mm-hmm. but but uh, but a conscious, aware, and engaged and involved person. And so, yes, I believe that you know, <clears throat> I believe that these laws. I, you, and, and part of it is that you have to think of every law and think like, why is this? Why do we have this law? Yeah, and and that's fun. That should be fun to 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 figure out why there are laws, and that's that's how you end up understanding what taxes are for because there are lots and lots of people in america that just don't like the idea of taxes yes and so they go to war with taxes or with america or they sit and they stew and are bitter and um maybe those people would would always stop at stoplights but they are plotting armed rebellion against the obama administration right because they don't like the idea of taxes but if you think about why we tax and what the purpose of of taxing is and you recognize like oh yeah of course that system is incomplete and of course there are opportunities for people to abuse it but more often more often you know the the taxation system is just so big and it has to fulfill so many obligations that it just it's it's a creaky you know bureaucracies are creaky not because they are not because of malice, but just because because we're so frail and people are so fallible. But you think, yes, of course, I want the things that taxes buy, and I recognize that we all benefit from collective work, and so yes, taxes, I get it, and I pay them. And do I? Does it hurt a little bit? Yes. Do, am I mad a little bit? Yes. But but I, I understand and agree. And, you know, and, the, and the, the same is true all the way down to, to stop signs in the middle of nowhere. And the same is true scaled all the way up to like um, the big adventure of a U.S. expansionist military <laughs> uh, foreign policy. Right, right. Where it's like, ah, that's not how I would do it. But I do see, you know, like my mom, for instance, does not believe in the army. She does not think there should be armies. And I understand where she's coming from. And we have long arguments about it and have for many years. But I do understand why there's an army. And I can't convince her why there's an army um, because she feels it the same way some people do about taxes that that you you should just start by eliminating the army and then figure out other ways to solve the problems that we that we feel we need armies to solve. I mean, do you have you have rational conversations with her about it, or is there a lot of yelling, or is she just not want to talk about it? Or there's not a lot of yelling, uh, but she's uh, you know she my my mom who is 81 years old now is much more radical than I am and always has been. Yeah, she believes in. Um, universal guaranteed income which i'm not i haven't made a decision about one way or the other and i i understand it but you know it's the um 
<clears throat> it's the it boils down to all these systems, Venn diagrams of systems overlapping, systems overlapping. Yeah. And and every system would work perfectly if all it had to do was obey its own rules. And so that's why socialism seems so appealing to socialists and why libertarianism seems so appealing to libertarians is that within the confines of their circle, yeah, all those things, libertarianism would work perfectly if it never had to interact with any other system. Right, right, right. Everyone has the personal responsibility that, that they need to have and, and everyone takes it seriously. Everyone is informed. Everyone is, because I love, I love the concept of, of, you know, being a libertarian, but it's, it does, it, it's one of the toughest, I think, concepts to, to bring into the real world. Because as soon as, and this is socialism is the same exact thing. As soon as you encounter one person who says, for whatever personal reason, says, I prefer not to, then the whole system breaks down because, because either you force that person to conform, in which case, whatever your, whatever your economic theory, it's now overlapping a Venn diagram of authoritarianism. Right. Or you don't force that person to conform. You either try to convince them to conform, which is liberalism, mm-hmm. or, uh, or you allow them to be outside of your system, in which case, little by little, your system falls apart. Because if one person's outside of it, then the second person is, and then a third person is, and pretty soon you're not, you know, you're, you, the, the rules of your closed system don't apply. So that awareness, uh, that sort of, daily consciousness and under uh, i guess in me it promotes an understanding that we're actually doing the best we can Mm -hmm. right now you know the system that we have is is a three-legged dog it is a it is a broken transmission it is all these terrible things it does it does have excesses and abuses threaded into it but as soon as you try to as soon as you monkey with one aspect of it you're either you either have to you either have to say well in order to apply this we are going to become an authoritarian society of one sort or another yeah or um or we're going to you know we're going to squeeze the balloon over here and over on this other side it's going to have unintended consequences we didn't foresee and then we're going to be putting out fires over there and putting out fires over there and 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 uh and that's kind of what we're doing already. So, so, um, and I, and, and what that all boils down to is that every once in a while in the middle of the night, I run a stop sign and I feel good about it. <laughs> and I say, this is my little contribution. Right. And I do it, I do it partly to pay myself back for all the stop signs I do stop at, uh-huh. but partly to say, like I agree with the laws for the most part and I agree with them I agree with them in in principle and I agree with them in spirit and um and I guess that's what it is to practice the spirit of the law is more important than to practice the letter of the law okay no I think most people would agree with that yeah. and so to practice the spirit of the law sometimes you flout the letter of the law but don't you feel that I mean it, it that there's a say that there's a safety issue no i do not feel that i feel like i am 
I am capable of making a determination that in the middle of the night, in the middle of town, when I can see for four miles in every direction. But it's the seeing the four miles that makes me feel better about this. Well, sure. But I mean, if you're, sit, if you're sitting at an intersection and you look left and you see the you see the traffic lights green into the distance. Right. You know what? I, as I've been no listening to you, to you talk about this, I've realized that there were times when I would blow through mm. and not even a pretense of stopping. <laughs> uh, and, and, but I felt that I was justified to do it, not out of a, some kind of, you know, like, like what you're describing where, where I, there is sort of a, a, a conceptual rationalization based on rule adherence and things like that. It was just, I was going through a really bad part of town. Oh, well, that's the old bad part of town problem. Yeah. It's the the Cabrini green problem. Right. I remember a police officer pulled up next to me at, uh, as I was driving through Cabrini green in Chicago and at some point in the late eighties. And, uh, I was sitting at a stoplight and a police officer pulled up next to me and rolled his window down and said, don't stop at stoplights around here. Right. And I was like, seriously, that's a fucked up thing to say. Uh, in that case, I'm going to sit at this stoplight. I'm, 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 taking, uh, I'm taking it into my own hands. So just again, to, to, as if to defy the rules, uh, you've been told don't stop. Now you are stopping. Well, because that is a, I mean, that's a, ter- <laughs> there, I have spent a lot of time in my life in neighborhoods where I was, where, where conventional wisdom said don't go mm-hmm. don't go into this neighborhood don't you know don't do this thing yeah right and that is that's a kind that of that gets your goat a little bit doesn't it it does it makes yeah. me super mad yeah. and uh, and so no i do i do go into the neighborhood and and uh and and have and have benefited greatly from it um from sitting at a stoplight where uh where the even the police are like running the lights because they don't want to sit and idle but that's, you know, do you feel, okay, different. but this, this goes back to the whole, and you know, we need to do our first sponsor, but this goes back to the whole size thing that I think that the perspective that you have on the world comes from somebody and a perspective, a perspective that comes from somebody who is a himself, a larger and more imposing force than most. Yep. Yeah. And, well, and, and I and think that has to affect your decision-making process in many situations as you as you enter a room or a space as you uh as you find yourself in a situation like you're you're not necessarily going to be as likely i think maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe it does work this way to like big guys but are you like were you picked on a lot as a kid were you the you know what i'm saying like I feel like you go into a space and you're like the Viking that's yeah. there as opposed to, you know, the court jester or something. I was picked on a lot, but I didn't get big until I was a junior in high school. I was, you know, because I, I started kindergarten when I was four. So I was always a year younger. Right. Yeah, me and too. so, you know, I was, I was, um, you were like, maybe, you were like the little guy for a while. Well, maybe I was appropriately sized uh-huh. uh, as a kid, as you know, like the same size as other kids. But I was a, I was emotionally much smaller, right? And so I was a pretty vulnerable kid 
until I got to be a junior. And then all of a sudden, like was much, just much bigger. And it all happened really fast. See, same exact thing happened to me, except as a junior, I never actually did get bigger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did well, you wear glasses as a kid? I, I started wearing them when I was in high school, jun- uh, freshman or sophomore. Yeah. But, but the, the, th- the, the, the privilege you're describing of, of being big and white, uh, <laughs> I have spent many years reflecting upon because I've done a lot of things in the world or I, I, I walked through the world um, like in a mantle of a big white American guy <laughs> and it has protected me like a coat of armor yeah. uh, for, for decades. And I wasn't always aware of it. I, when I think, I think when I was young, I, um, when I was young, like, I mean, in my early twenties and mid twenties, i still felt like a vulnerable child inside. Mm. And so wasn't aware how much access I had by being, you know, like just what I said earlier about understanding that the police are, uh, are agents of a, of an authority, but the, they themselves do not have any authority over me individually. That is a very privileged position. Oh yeah. That I can, you know, that has a lot more to do with my whiteness than it does my size. Uh, where a police officer comes up and says, you can't stand here. And I say, I beg your pardon. But in fact, I can. <laughs> and that's almost entirely a white privilege thing rather than a size privilege. Thing. Yeah, yeah. But the size and also the privilege of being uh, of, of gender in terms of being able to walk around and... and um, be in the wrong neighborhood at the wrong time. Yeah. Uh, those are all, uh, all, I mean, an awareness of that was dawning over the course of, of a few decades. And it's, and it's a powerful, I mean, it's a, it is a powerful set of, of privileges that I have, you know, that I'm able to apply. And, it, and what it does is it, I mean, primarily I do not, assert that I have any more right to the armrest than the person, than the small person sitting next to me. Yeah. Because I recognize that the indignity of, of things not being built to suit me, uh, pales in comparison to the, the great, um, opportunities I'm afforded by, by precise, by precisely those factors. Right. And, you know, the loud husky voice helps. Yep. And the, and also the thousand yard stare that I've cultivated for many years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the steely resolve and the fact, you know what my biggest privilege is? The fact that my parents always laughed at my jokes, like genuinely laughed at my humor. My parents were interested in what I had to say, weren't, weren't pretending, weren't, weren't feigning an interest, right. but from a very young age, they thought I was funny and they thought I was interesting. Man, and that, that says so much, doesn't it? It does. And that is the, you know, that is the primary, like the privilege that I, that I had from a young age because it taught me that I was interesting and, and worth listening to. And that's not a, <clears throat> that's not a thing that, I mean, you know, culturally, whether people think that I'm 
interesting or whether people listen more to big white men than they do to other people. Like that's definitely a factor. But the primary factor was that my folks, when I said, when I was six years old and said something, tried to, tried to make a joke and say something funny, my folks were like, ha ha, good. (laughs) And that gave me more power. It gave me more sense of my capability and my belonging in the world. Like the world itself has never really, uh, has never really said unequivocally like, John Roderick, you belong. Right? The world has, is pretty ambivalent about whether I belong. The world doesn't necessarily like my approach. But my folks always did. And so somewhere in me, there is a feeling that, yes, absolutely, I belong. And if I walk into a room and everyone in there despises me, I still feel like I, that, that they can't keep me out. Right. Man. All right, let me do our, our first spot. This is the first sponsor of our first episode. First sponsor, first episode. I can't wait to hear who they are and what their product is. <laughs> it's, it's Warby Parker. Warby Parker, the the glasses frame manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, they do lenses too, and this is this is the way they work. Okay, go ahead. Uh, and I'm wearing them right now. I started wearing the Warby Parkers uh, a long time ago, before they were like a podcast sponsoring type entity, uh, because I had become disenfranchised with the racket that is going to buy glasses like in a in a store. And trying on glasses that, you know, they have such a limited selection. And a friend of mine had really cool glasses. They were this cool frame and cool design and everything. And I said, well, where did you get those? And he said, well, they're sunglasses. And I just went and bought a pair of sunglasses because they were the only cool frames that existed. And I just go to a place and they put lenses in them i said well, sounds ex- like a cool guy sounds it sounds like your friend is a cool friend he was all right and i said wasn't well, that expensive he says yes it's very expensive so uh that that was kind of i did that and then i just kept that pair for a very long time and then i i discovered warby parker and the way that they work is uh they're all online they don't have like stores that you go into and that's how they save the money they kind of cut out the middleman and you get it right from them. But then there's this problem of, well, how do I know how these frames are going to look on me? And, and what if I don't like them? And they have so many choices, it seems impossible. So the way that they get around that, they have something called the Home Try-On Program, where you get five pairs of glasses that are shipped to you for free. They Obviously, they don't have your prescription in them, but they're just the, the dummy lenses. Mm-hmm. But you get to try them on and see how they look, and you get to keep them. Uh, for I think you keep them for like either five or seven days so you can try them on, see how they look and decide which ones you like and which ones you want to order. And you know what? If like that first set of five, if if you can't figure out which one you like and you want to try it, they let you do this multiple times and it doesn't cost anything until you figure mm-hmm. out which one you want. You get the one you want. You're like, okay, this is the pair I want. Then you send them all back. They pay for all that. And you put in your order. And you get the pair of really, really great lenses. Now I've got like, my vision isn't terrible, but it's weird because I've got an astigmatism and I'm nearsighted and it's different in each eye. And the lens has to be at like a certain rotation for the astigmatism to work. It's complicated. It's not good. See, once again, 
evidence that God is playing a prank. Right. It's not enough that I have. He has one of your <laughs> eyes rotated just slightly out of That's right. kilter. Yeah. It's a bad joke. It's a bad one. So I, I have this weird thing and I'm like, you know what? They'll never get it right. They'll never get it right. Uh, but they do. They get it right. And also, it ha- I have to have what's called like a high index. The geeks in the audience will know what this means because we all have bad vision, right? High index. High index. And, th- and they automatically give you high index lenses. They'll tell you that. But like they look at your prescription and they say, you, you need to get high index lenses. Like they've got it all covered. And uh, the home trials are already free. Okay. But, it, but listeners of this show, they even, John, they even made a special uh, URL for us. Warby Parker. Warby, W-A-R-B-Y, warbyparker.com slash roadwork, and you will get free three-day shipping. They will Don't. expedite your uh, your glasses. Have you done the home try-on? Are you going to be doing this? Because you said you needed some new glasses. Me? Aren't yours vintage? You're they asking have- me? Yes. So, you know, I have a very complicated relationship with Warby Parker uh, because for many, many years, the only way to get the kind of glasses that I prefer was to buy vintage right, glasses. Right. And that required a lot of work s- sorting through bins <laughs> and visiting <laughs> strange people in weird parts of town. Right. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you would find an old optometrist where they still had a bunch of vintage frames in the basement, but the, but the old man that was running the place didn't really want to go down there. You could talk him into it. <laughs> go down and find a thing. And, you know, I bought so many pairs of vintage glasses where it still had the original price tag on it from the fifties and sixties. And, and, and then when you would get lenses put in them, you always were worried that the plastic was, had decayed and was going to crack. And right. So when I was out in the world, roaming around the streets of America and <laughs> Europe, and I would see someone at a distance right. wearing a pair of glasses, which I, I instantly identified as vintage glasses. That person would also see me. And I knew how much work they'd put into that. And they knew how much work I'd put into it. So we would nod and sometimes even stop and talk. I remember one time in a cafe in Hamburg, I, uh, the guy behind the <laughs> counter was wearing a pair of glasses, uh, glasses which I coveted. Yeah, and knew were very special, and I said those glasses, and he said, "Yeah, well, I found them in Berlin from a man with a <laughs> special place, and and he had a he had a dog, and it was a red dog, and and where we had this long conversation about the the great adventure he'd gone on to find this particular pair of frames, and uh, I'm always telling the story of the glasses I'm wearing and so forth. It was it was it was always a a real indicator of a certain kind of person and warby parker's frames are all designed very much according to the principles of like vintage yeah for sure they look very very classic and so uh, just a few years ago when warby parker came on the scene i was suddenly in this position where i would see somebody in an airport or in a grocery store and I would f- see their glasses and feel like here is an entree to talk to this person. And I would walk up to them and say, <laughs> your glasses, they're extraordinary. Tell me about them. <laughs> right. And the person would look at me shocked uh-huh. 
and say, um, they're Warby Parker. Right. And I would go, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted your day. Like, you, you know, you're free to go. I, I just thought, because it, at any <laughs> other time in my life, I would have, you know, marched up to this person and gone, your glasses, tell me about them. And they would have said, in 1979, I was in, a, you know, I was in the deserts of Sumaria and so forth. So it has changed my social equation now because I see people in the world uh, wearing glasses that, you know, that I, I spent 25 years. I spent 30 years training myself to see these, uh, see a certain kind of frame and know what it meant. Yeah. And now it means a different thing. Now, now regular people have access to these frames Regular people have access to these styles. People who do not want to be in the basement of a optometrist in Chinatown, and that is very complicated. So I have never had a pair of Warby Parker glasses, but I'm ready. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready to go through the looking glass. Wow, and 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 try on and and you know and take the risk and have the adventure, have the adventure of. <laughs> Uh, of this new this new way into this look right right so now i can walk up to somebody in an airport and say are those warby parkers and they're gonna look at me and go are those warby parkers and we're gonna have like a it's a new way of sharing right it'll be a different kind of you know a different kind of friendship i'm 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 you know i'm ready to bloom and grow (laughs) bloom and grow forever (laughs) warbyparker.com slash roadwork uh go check it out support the show Thanks to them for making this show possible. So I have a series of uh, questions for you. All right. Um, I had this idea for, for, for rituals and routines as a, an overarching topic. And this occurred to me because, and I've, I've, I've talked on the air about these neighbors that I have before across the street who had this red light on. But the other neighbors next to them across the street, and for those who are fans of, of Back to Work, uh, they, this is the same ones that had the, the kid who was chucking around the wooden rifle. Mm-hmm. They don't, they have a series of different lights on the front of their house. They have what I would call their garden lights, which are mixed through all the plants that you know, they turn on the lights and it, it shines. This one shines on this tree. This one is behind the shrubs over here. This one illuminates oh, the oh, little oh, path landscaping light landscaping light and then they also have sort of the what i would just call the house house lights which are you know to the left and the right of the main entry of the door you know so that you turn those on and that's like how you would see if you were walking up to the door you'd know where you're going there's no prowlers or whatever and then they have their motion sensor light which is over by the garage so that if you maybe forgot to put the other lights on and you're driving up at night, the light, your car drives up and the light automatically turns on and then you can find your way into the garage. And I feel like I have, and it occurred to me over the last, cause what I do is as, as I'm on my way up to bed, I will, you know, we have like a, a window in our door. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, and I will look, I will glance out the window on my, on my way past the door going upstairs. And I, I just sort of notice, you know, I sort of take, take stock of what's going on. 
before I go up. That makes and, sense. Yeah, you know, why not? See what's going on. And there's no rhyme or reason to how they use these lights. And like my lights, when I put the kids to bed, I come downstairs and I turn on the, the main lights on the outside of the house. And then in the morning when I come down, if one of them hasn't already turned it off, I will turn it off. You've got a rhyme and a reason. I've got it. And I feel like, you know, and yes, we have a motion sensor light also, but these people across the street, all that they're used different combinations. Sometimes it's just the landscaping. Sometimes it's the landscaping and the lights around. Oh, and they also have a green light that they'll put on periodically. Hmm. Sometimes they, and they, and there's no, it makes no sense. How they do it different times, it doesn't matter. And it's driving me nuts. And But that's a separate topic. It just occurred to me as I was thinking about that, that I, I seem to have these routines. I seem to have these things that I do that I, I guess I draw some kind of comfort uh, in, in, in doing them. And it, it, it's not like if it, doesn't, if it doesn't happen that I, like, I can't sleep or something like that or like I'll be tossing and turning in bed if I don't do – whatever the thing is, but I definitely, and this leads to, I guess, back to my OCD stuff, which I also noticed there is even sometimes I'll have a similar uh, thought pattern as I'm doing the certain thing that has become the kind of ritual. And I'm aware that I'm having that even while I'm doing it, but I must, it must be working for some reason to do that. And I realized going into the show today you strike me as the kind of person that doesn't have a lot of that where every day might be a bit different for you. And maybe you like it that way. Mm-hmm. Is that, am I off base with that? No, I, <clears throat> I do not have very many routines. Like when you wake up, walk, like, is there a thing that you do in the day? Like when you wake up in, in the morning, if it is the morning, you know, is there a certain time of day when you would wake up or is it entirely based on when you went to bed the night before? Do you have, do you drink coffee? Is there a certain, you know, do you have like one cup of coffee and then you do this other thing or is it just every day is different? I, I'm, I'm a person probably like a lot of our listeners, just a normal, a normal person uh-huh. um, who <laughs> does not like to go to sleep and also does not like to wake up. So when it's time to go to sleep, I do everything I can to avoid going to sleep. I sit and read until I'm too exhausted to hold up my book. And then I go downstairs and get a drink of water. And then maybe I'll take a little handful of popcorn. And then I'll go back upstairs and lay down. And maybe I'll play solitaire on my phone for a while. Whatever it is, I hate to finally succumb, turn off the light roll over, go to sleep. And I will stay up for hours and hours rather than, um, rather than just make the decision. Now it is time for sleep. And so I never go to sleep at a regular time because I'm always trying to push that boundary. Just push, push it a little bit further. Just a little, I can read, I can read two more pages of this book, just a little longer. I don't know why, that is true. I just don't like to give up. And then once I have turned off the light and am and am sleeping, um, I love being asleep. 
And in the morning, when it's time to wake up, I do not want to wake up. I want to roll over and go back to sleep as long as I possibly can. So I will I'll first become kind of awake and aware at seven or eight o'clock in the morning, and I will I will say, Ugh, that's terrible. Seven o'clock in the morning. Awful, awful time. And I'll roll over and go back to sleep. And then it'll be eight, and then it'll be nine, and I will keep doing that. And at a certain point, the idea enters into my mind that now it's late. Now I have slept too long. Um, and my reaction to that is generally to try and put that feeling out of my mind by rolling over and going back to sleep again. And depending on, my, depending on where I am in my uh, bipolar cycle, I sometimes will sleep until one o'clock in the afternoon by that method. Uh, and other times, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, I, I finally have some, have enough to do, have enough scheduled that I have to get up. So for instance, this morning, mm-hmm. I knew that I had a podcast with you right. at a certain point, but also my daughter has to get up and go to school in the morning. So I, I wake up, I get her up and going to school. And that is a thing that, you know, is, um, I have, I have help from my mom in doing, and there are times when I have, when the, the burden of getting my daughter up and, and off to school falls entirely to me. And other times I have, it is a cooperative effort and other times other people in my daughter's life, get her up and get her to school and allow me to kind of sleep in because everybody in my family knows about this problem. But then back to sleep, I went and slept until was absolutely up against the deadline of needing to get up and come to my office to podcast with you. And so one of the ways I try and live a normal life is I schedule things at a certain hour in the morning where it requires that I be up Mm. like a regular person. But then I resent those appointments because they are forcing me up. Anyway, so every single day is different because every day has a, has a, first appointment and sometimes that first appointment is 8 a.m. and sometimes it's 10 a.m. but I will sleep right up until the last possible moment no matter what the rule is and then making coffee of my own in the morning is very it's it's it requires that I be up early enough to make coffee and I always would rather sleep until the last possible moment rather than get up and make a pot of coffee, even though I want coffee. So I tried to buy one of those coffee makers that was on a timer that would make the coffee for me, but Uh that required that I do the work at night and I didn't really want to do that either. And so you're starting to get a picture, I hope, of how burdensome I find almost everything. (laughs) And, And what that means is that I'm always... I'm always just being prodded along with a with like the cattle prod of responsibility and it moves me from one thing to the next but never with never according to a a um an architecture of of a of a ritual or a scheme or a plan it's always just an alarm is going off and I've pushed the snooze button 
And this is true in the day too, right? It's, it's right now it's, uh, it's quarter till here. And I made some plan to meet somebody later. And I told them I would be there between a certain time and another time. And all of that, you know, is just an attempt to like prod me on this sort of baton death march <laughs> that is living a life. Yeah. And so I'm it's always... Nothing, but there, I, I feel like I know you and from listening to your shows and stuff well enough that I, I don't feel that like it's not a laziness thing. It's just, it's something to do with like if, if I'm home alone, if I'm not, if my kids aren't there, my wife isn't there and I'm not, like I won't, I won't cook ever because I just feel like it's just not worth the effort, you know? And there's this, this thing, this long running thing in my house. I've never talked about publicly. I won't wash. I will not wash grapes. I will not do it. It's way too much of a hassle to get them out of the packaging to put them into a bowl, rinse them over and over again you know, dump out the water, get a little paper towel. It's just, I just won't eat them. They'll just go bad. There are so many individual grapes. It's very hard to know if you have washed a bunch of grapes successfully. How do you get in there? You know? Yeah. And I just won't do it. I just won't do it. And my wife will be like, Oh, you know, she'll be like, Oh, I, I got grapes at the grocery store. I'm like, well, that's nice. Right. You know, she'll be like, well, do you want, do you want some? I'll be like, yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to wash them. She'll be like, mm-hmm. I know you won't, you know, I know you're not going to wash them. I will wash them for you. I'm like, well, I don't want you to have to do that. She's like, let me just wash you some grapes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a division of labor within your marriage that she shoulders the grape washing. Yes. And then you must, you must do some correspondingly onerous tasks. No, but task see, that's that the thing. And I won't do it. I won't do it. I refuse to do it. And if it's related to the grapes, I'm not going to do it because I just don't, I think it's too much trouble to do it. Yeah. If it there's, is a lot of trouble. If there's two people, you know, then I'll, I'll, it's like making scrambled eggs. I'm very good at that. I'm very, oh. very good at that. Oh, is that right? You're a good scrambled very, egg Very, very good. I got that from my granddad. Yeah, I don't know how to make them. It's not hard. There are secrets to it, though. Yeah, and people, this is, well, see, this is the thing. It's not hard, slash, but there are secrets to it. <laughs> it's like, well, that sounds hard. No, you I have, mean. You have to learn a secret. You have to get somebody to tell you a secret, first of all, and then you have to learn it. Do you want to hear the system and make it very easy? You can make good. Does your daughter like scrambled eggs? Everybody likes scrambled eggs. Find me a person that doesn't like scrambled eggs. That's true. This is true. But I don't, I, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I put a little milk in them. I put a little water in them. I whip them up. I, I set the stove. I do the, I make them and then they always burn and are dry. Mm, I can fix that. If you ever want, if you ever want to hear my steps, I can go through it because again, this is the, what I'm talking about. I have like, and I notice this and I feel like, I feel like this is everything is more efficient because of the way that I work in my mind, especially in the kitchen. But like I have a, a system, everything that I do is kind of designed to, to be efficient and to take the least number of steps possible to complete a task because at heart I am lazy at my heart. I don't, I want to take the least number of steps to do anything. I don't want to, I just, I don't like 
things that take a lot of steps to do. So I'm always trying to optimize it. So like I'll, I'll organize like the way that our drawers are in the kitchen and the placement of like, why is the silverware in this drawer? And why are the cups in this drawer? And why are the mugs over here? And why is the thing over here? It's to reduce the number of steps that it takes to do any one thing. Do you go to a psychologist? Not at present. Have you in the past? Yes. Mm -hmm. And what did that psychologist tell you? Uh, she uh, said it's called di- uh, generalized anxiety disorder, but I don't have it really anymore. Oh, really? You, uh, you've, you've, um, you've solved your generalized anxiety by organizing all of the, no, no, no. The, I'm much, much better than I used to be. I spent years, uh, doing, um, mindfulness Vipassana style meditation and mm-hmm. things like that for very serious, very serious meditation practice that, uh, you should have seen me. I was a real mess. Mm-hmm. Namaste. Thank you. And now you feel you feel like you're 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 on top of it. Yeah, it used well much more than I used to be. I mean, there's still everyone has things, you know. Yes, uh, we're true. all a work in progress. But I'll give you I'll give you an example. Let me tell you how how I do the eggs. All right, tell me how you do the eggs. I'll tell you how I do the eggs, and uh, and then you can you can de- determine if I how I'm doing. Okay. All right. And this is usually I'm making eggs for four people. So that's right. how many so people I w- we have. I would there. be making eggs for between two and three people, but I would always make enough eggs for four people. Okay. Because I have a general principle, which is make all the bacon. Right. Right? Yep. And so make all the bacon also includes make eggs for four. Yeah. So I'm very curious. And also we should, we should stay that making scrambled eggs is A, one of the most universal things. Yes. Everyone has done it and seen it done a thousand times. So for you to be now venturing a secret system or a better way of making scrambled eggs, it is like saying, here is a new way to wipe yourself when you have gone potty. (laughs) Right? It's a thing that we all do (laughs) all the time. Everybody's presumably got their own way of doing it. Right. But you are stepping into this arena and saying, no, there is a better way. Yeah. And frankly, I wish somebody would come up with a better way to wipe yourself when you have gone potty because I don't feel like my method is any great shakes. It's not some, that's not something you're proud of. I don't, you know, I feel like I'm just, do, I'm just, I'm barely eking it out. I'm barely squeaking by. I think we all feel my, that way though. Yeah. It just feels like there's not a better way to do this. You know, the people that invented the wet wipes, they said, "Oh, here's a better way," mm-hmm. and then they then they ruined the sewer systems of every city in America. Yeah, right. So, flushable, flushable <clears throat> wipes. They're not flushable. Don't flush them. That's my public service announcement. Okay, but you're 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 walking into this scrambled egg story. You're planting a flag, mm-hmm. and you're saying, "Here it is, mm-hmm. the definitive or one of the, one of one of a handful of definitive <laughs> methods." Yes, of doing this universal task. So I am all ears. Go. Okay. Well, when you, there's a lot of details here. So the first one is the kind of pan that you use. Wait a minute. You said it was easy. It's easy, but you just got to get the things in place. Okay. You can, there are people who will use different kinds of pans. They have this new, and I'll I'll put this in, I'll put this in the show notes. They have this new kind of pan. Oh, wait a minute. It's a new kind. It requires a new kind of pan. No, you can do it with any pan. You can do it with any pan as long as it's nonstick. But they have this new kind of nonstick pan surface that's 
really, really great. So I recommend that. But you can do as long, you just need a nonstick pan. That's step one. Okay. But like you can get these like green earth frying pans. Anyway, I'll put it in the show notes. You can do it with any pan as long as it's nonstick. So you get your nonstick pan and you have a spatula. Spatula has to be plastic because you got to use plastic on the nonstick. Plastic spatula, nonstick pan, maybe something called a green earth pan. Yes. It'll be in the show notes. You also have, you got to have butter and you can't be afraid of butter. That's the thing. I see people put a tiny little pat of butter. Of course, it's going to dry out and be all dry and nasty and and, and stuck to the, yeah, of course. You're going to use butter. And they say, wait, I thought butter was a lubricant for for the pan. If we have a nonstick pan, what do we need that for? You still need it, okay? Uh, it's okay. Don't fear the butter. Don't fear. And then what you do is you want to have this on like a medium heat. People are, are thinking they want it on a high heat. If you do it on a high heat, there's something about the way high heat will affect the proteins of the egg, I'm told, that cause it to get sort of ropey. And so like if you ever go to like one of those like greasy spoon diners and you get the eggs that, that are sort of like chewier or tougher or something that's just because they're in a hurry they want to cook these things fast so they got the heat cranked up this is not a fast system i'm about to tell you okay don't crank the heat medium eggs like medium medium heat or they'll get ropey right and you don't want a ropey egg then you take a a large enough bowl that's going to fit all the eggs that you're going to crack into but you want it to be larger so if you're doing you know i don't know how many eggs you're going to do eight eggs does that seem like enough well you're the one that's saying for making eggs for four people eight eggs Eight eggs, all right. And you want to, you, you take a paper towel and you lay it on the countertop and you take the bowl and you put it next to that. And then the way you want to crack eggs, you don't want to crack eggs. People have told you wrong. They've told you to crack eggs on the corner of the bowl. Do, do not do that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do wait a minute. not do that. This is the, this is the beginning of, of a new, new, uh, new ideas for me here. Now, what, what do you mean? You don't crack Never, eggs on the corner of the no, bowl? No, 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 no. There's two reasons for this. Seriously, the first one is, well, three reasons. The first one is it's going to be a mess if you do it that way, because as soon as you crack it that way, the egg's immediately going to start pouring out of there onto the side of the bowl, dripping down the side of the bowl. The drip goes down to the countertop, more to clean. Uh, don't, don't do that. The second reason is you're, um, you're going to get tiny little pieces of egg, I'm sorry, of shell, that will then be mixed into the egg because when you break it that way, it's not a clean break. It's a, sh- a shattering kind of effect as opposed to like a clean break. The little pieces then are going to go into the eggs that you're making. Then this is number th- reason number three. They're also going to any bacteria that might have been on the outside of the egg if it wasn't, you know, properly cleaned. That's now being introduced into the egg. Not well, a big concern. About, not a big concern. Introducing bacteria into yeah. the egg? Not a big concern, but I'm just saying, just keep that in mind. Bear that in mind as another reason to crack it the new way. The new way is now crack it fl- on the flat surface of the counter or the table or whatever you're using. I put a paper towel under it just to make it easier to clean up. That's optional. You crack it there and you have to crack the eggs one-handed. Are you doing it two-handed? No, one not, hand. I'm not a monster. Okay. okay. So you crack it one handed crack. Then you, you open it up into there and then put the shell in the shell. Put that on the little paper towel. Don't put it in. Are you one of the people who puts it into the egg carton? Back in the egg carton that cracked? Maybe. Okay. Are you, you can, saying don't do that? I don't care if you do that. I don't do that. Then you, you crack. Put, okay. You and, put them right in the compost. Yeah, right in the compost. Right. Here in Texas. Okay. 
and Texas compost. Right. And then you, you crack all eight of them in there. Then you're done. Then you whip it. Now you want to whip it with a fork, man. I, I, you could use a whisk, but those are harder to clean. Just use a fork. And the whole point of beating it or scrambling it is that you want to introduce air into this as well as mixing it up. You want to introduce air. You want to see bubbles in that. There's people who sort of just stir to combine, but that's not what you're doing. You're, you're beating these eggs to get lots of air and bubbles and everything into them. That'll make for a much lighter, fluffier, more evenly cooked egg, right? Right. So then you turn on your stove and you get, you get it going to medium. And then you put you, now, if you're worried that this is too hot, here's how you can check. You get a little bit of water on your hand and you sort of flick the water into the pan. Flick the water. You want the little drops of water to sort of dance around the pan, dancing Mm -hmm. around the pan. If they're like, and they're gone, too hot. Too hot. You want the the water to dance around the pan. Yes. Now, wait, have you put the butter in? Not yet. So you've got a dry, hot pan. Right. Nonstick. Yep. Potentially green earth pan. Yeah. You throw some water in it and then you watch it dance. It's got to dance around the pan. And if it, if it, otherwise it's too hot. Now, once you know where that setting is, you don't have to test it every time. You can just say, okay, the setting for me on this stove is right at medium or, or, you know, one notch past medium or whatever. You just learn that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then you take the butter, put in too much butter. Until the point where you're looking at it and you're like, mm, I, I've put in too much butter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Then you know you did it right. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Good. Spread the butter around the pan. Pour the eggs in all at once from the bowl at, once the butter is melted across the pan. And then here's the other critical part. You do not, you stir this and you're stirring it and you're stirring the whole thing and you do not stop stirring it until the eggs are done and you're putting it onto the plate. You're standing there. You're manning this. The whole time you're no so you're saying you're monkeying with these eggs from the moment that they hit the pan right. until they until they're out of the pan flip fold just like just flipping with your plastic spatula yeah and you do not stop you're stirring you can flip you can stir you do everything here's the thing you also want to stop right before it looks like the eggs are done there's an old saying i know you know it uh don't stop before the eggs are done. Done in the pan, overdone on the plate. So you actually want to stop, bef- right? When you're like, oh, they're not quite done. That's when you take them off because they will continue to cook once they're plated. Perfect eggs every time. It's that simple. They'll continue to cook yes. once they're plated. So how do you know they are almost ready? If you look at them and you say they are just a little bit too... uh runny or just a little bit too moist, whatever word you want to use, that's when you take them off. Uh I'm serious. This is a real, this recipe is a real crowd pleaser. Now, how about, I hate to, I hate to get into this, but how about introducing cheese or uh, diced ham or some other element into these eggs? No, you can do that. If you don't want to do that as an omelet, you just want wishy-washy. I take umbrage at characterizing it as wishy-washy. That's what they used to call it in the school cafeteria when they had like cheese and peppers and onions and stuff mixed in their ham. They called it wishy-washy? <laughs> yes. 
And you went to school in West Texas somewhere? No, this on some- is Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, Philadelphia. Yeah. I, I think that was just a school thing, though. It was called wishy-washy. That's what they called it. Scrambled... Uh, With uh, stuff mixed in. Egg stuff. Yeah. What Now, <laughs> let me ask you this. When you take a... When you take a cup and you go and you put a little bit of root beer and a little bit of Pepsi and a little bit of 7-Up and a little bit of uh, Orange Crush in it, what do you call that? Uh, no, I've never done that. Is that good? You mix all that together? That's called a Long Island iced tea. No. No, I don't know what that is called. What you do you call it? Did you? Just having you, fun having, having fun in, in, in your kitchen when the parents are not there? Did, no. Did you ever go roller skating? Yeah. No, I was not very good at that. But I had went, the kind, my mom couldn't, we couldn't afford the real roller skates. So I had the kind, the little metal uh, things that would clip on you to outside of your sneakers. Well, did you grow up in the 1940s? No, this was nine. I was born in 72. So they didn't have roller rinks where you. No, they did. I just never, I was never, I never got to go to that. You didn't, you didn't get to go to the roller rink. No, not until I was much older. And by then it was too late for me to learn. I just so fell all did, the time. What did kids do for birthday parties in the late 1970s where you grew up in Philadelphia? Um, yeah, did you I guys think, just go, did you just go pitch pennies against I, the wall? Or? I don't remember. I remember a lot of street hockey. Street hockey. And a Nerf, Nerf football would be brought out. Because you were you were growing up in Germantown or something, and yeah. there was you literally were growing up in Germantown, right by Germantown, Abington. <clears throat> well, for those of us who grew up in sort of west, <laughs> western world. western suburban environments, uh-huh. who were not growing up in some kind of John Waters film, <laughs> it, it might believe me, my childhood is anything but idyllic. But I I, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean you you were back east in in like the decaying remnants of a 19th century American city. <laughs> yes. Trying to find amusement. Right. In a, you know, in a place that was ruled by various mafias and That's characterized am- by ingrained <laughs> systemic racism. Yes. No, absolutely. Yes. That is it. Better than yes. I've ever heard anyone describe it. Out West where the roads were wide and freedom was in the trees. Yeah. We had, we had all these different options. Uh, but primarily, a, a kid's social life in the 1970s revolved around the roller rink. Right. And you went to the roller rink at birthday parties and on Friday nights, and they played Blondie and, um, and Chic uh-huh. and the Bee Gees. And you rented a pair of roller skates. You didn't have to buy them or clip on some, like, tin roller skates uh-huh. to your Converse tennis shoes. Right. You rented roller skates and then you skated around huh. and and uh, the boys skated with the boys and the girls skated with the girls unless it was couples skate in which case you had to either get off the roller rink or find someone uh, to skate with as a couple. Right. Um, I've seen that in movies and I have been I did go to a roller rink uh at, at, at many, many years later, by then, I, I had never really learned to roller skate. So it was just a lot of sort of, you know, you've got your hands along the, the wall and you're doing your best. You might try to go like halfway across the mm-hmm. thing to the yeah, other wall. But, but no, you're just a danger to everybody. With that. <laughs> yeah, I did that. But one of the primary things at a roller rink 
because you know I'm I'm speaking now as a ten year old <laughs> in 1978, and um, you are at the roller rink. You are free, right? You your parents take you there and leave you because they don't want to be in this terrible environment. <laughs> Uh, and you are now alone, but in basically what amounts to a club, a nightclub. Oh, wow. Where you are on roller skates and they are playing disco music. Of course. And so you're experiencing all these things. You're experiencing like the tension of, of uh, the sexual politics of 10-year-olds. You're learning how to dance and also learning how to roller skate. But most importantly, you are in charge of your own soda pop experience because at the roller rink you would get a cup and then the soda pop machine was there and it was the first it was at least my first exposure to a pop machine which you could access yourself you you didn't have to go to the soda fountain guy and say give me a coke you could get your own coke Mm. and so did they sell did they have the cigarette machines at these no absolutely there were cigarette machines okay yeah um, and so it was at the roller rink that I was introduced to the concept of making a pop where you did not just have one kind of pop. You went down the line and you put a little bit of every kind of pop in the cup. So you got some root beer, some orange, some Sprite, some, some, you skip the diet, obviously. And I think at the time, maybe there wasn't even a diet pop 1978. No, there was tab. And I and I like tab, so you put a little tab in there. But mm-hmm. you go down, and it's a regionalism. Some people would call that a a cemetery or a suicide. Okay, yeah. But we called it a graveyard. Oh. And what I was hoping to get was that you guys in Philadelphia, with your strange, <laughs> like, uh. Godfather Part Two <laughs> version of of the world, right? That you guys had some other weird name for a graveyard, but of course, I'm realizing that it was even weirder there. That you were probably still drinking Moxie out of a bottle. <laughs> it wasn't quite like that. Like, did you ever have a fluffer nutter? I no. What is a fluffer nutter? You don't know. See, we had is it some... some kind of it's some kind of whipped cream thing. No, well, okay. So, do you do you know uh, what marshmallow cream, aka fluff, is? I think that you would put that in. What do you put marshmallow cream in? I think you you, you would mix it into some sort of dessert. Uh, uh, I mean, I, we had marshmallows. Okay, well, it's not. I mean, it's essentially it's like uh, this. It's like. If you've so you ever had a, a well, ha, yeah, like have you ever had a s'more? You've had s'mores, right? Come on, okay. Of course. So, so you know scout. how you know how yeah you know how the the s'more when you're making it the 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 marshmallow becomes. I, I can li- imagine liquid. what marshmallow cream is by the name. It's it, it is it is when you if you were it, it is what a melted marshmallow is, but is stable at room temperature. Okay. A fluffer nutter is a sandwich made with peanut butter. And the marshmallow cream. Peanut butter. Yeah, peanut butter and the marshmallow cream on white bread. Now you people could do the wheat bread, but that was frowned upon when I was being oh, wait, wait, wait. on bread? 
yeah, on, on a on a white bread, you know, like Wonder Bread. Peanut butter and marshmallow cream on, on white bread. That's a fluffernutter. Oh my god. This is like, you know, every every mom made this for their kids as like a snack. This wouldn't qualify as a lunch. It's a snack. So you would so you'd stop playing stickball for a minute. Yeah. And and Vinny would come out and turn the fire hydrant off. Yeah. So that you could get on your tin roller skates uh-huh. and skate home to the stoop where your mother would give you white bread with marshmallow fluff on yeah, it. Yeah, you've got it. Good grief. Yeah. I yeah. feel like I feel And you'd like probably I'd, get beat up on the way home. Get it sure, get beat up on the way home. <laughs> and, then, and then Serpico would squeal up and get into a fight with some uh with some a pimp. Right. This whole this whole thing. I, I, no wonder you escaped to Texas. Yeah, no. I mean, it's it was quite a thing. You know, out out in the West. You know, <laughs> in Alaska, most of the streets when I was a kid, most of the streets in the town outside of the center of town were mm-hmm. not paved streets; they were dirt streets. Oh man! So you couldn't roller skate on the streets, um, and you had to watch out for bulldozers. Ooh. Uh, which were a big part of the traffic up there at the time, but uh, but no, there were no there were no fluffernutters, and yeah. I still I still am trying I'm trying to imagine it, and it sounds so repulsive. No, no, it's good. I mean, if you're back on the gluten thing, I would love for you to make one of these. Uh, no, it sounds awful. No, it's great. It's really good. Now, if you want to get really fancy with it. You can add. It's not fancy enough. No, no. You can do a lot with this. What do you? What do you add? Sprinkles. Bananas. You could do slices of banana in it. Come on. This is just. This is like some. I'm a some, purist. Okay, so I just like the straight fluff or nutter. That's but, Elvis food. No, no. You can put little slices of bananas, just like you might put bananas in, you know, like pancakes or something. There are other people, and I've never had this, but I've seen it. You can go savory. You can go bacon. But I've never, I have never done that. This is pure Elvis food. And let no, me also no. state for the record, do not put sliced bananas in your pancakes. What's wrong with that? Well, I just don't, I just don't approve of it. I feel like if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a pancake mm-hmm. and you want a banana, yeah. that's, that's fine. Okay. But why would you put bananas, sliced bananas? That's like putting sliced hot dogs in your macaroni and cheese. No, I am, I'm so with you on that. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I don't put beans in chili. I don't put chocolate chips in oatmeal raisin cookies. I don't even think no. the raisins are necessary. No, no, keep those foods apart. Thank you. We're going to do just fine on this show, John. Keep those foods apart, and fr- and frankly, no walnuts in fudge. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't like a walnut brownie either. No, don't put a walnut in that. I mean, if you want to have a handful of walnuts or whatever, that's fine. Or maybe you want walnuts thank on God, top. Thank God for you. But, you know, you show up at somebody's house for Christmas fudge and the walnuts in it. What is that? Who does like, that? Come on, Grandma. Get the walnuts out of the fudge. It's terrible. All right, listen, before we wrap up, we got to do our, our last sponsor. Now, how many sponsors do we have? Two. This is the second. Oh, okay, all right. So, second sponsorship. Second and final. This is all new to me. Um, well, how does Merlin I, do it on your other show? Does he just drop them in? Who knows? Uh, Merlin doesn't share uh, with me any of the the inner workings of the show. He prefers to keep me in the dark. Uh, 
and that is uh, that works for both of yeah, us. Yeah, you're fine with that. Well, on this on this show, we do them in in line. If I'm you're okay how with the, that, I'm seeing how the sausage is made here, and I and I'm, I can't wait to hear who the second glorious sponsor of the show is. It, I'm so pleased about them. It is a company called Wealthfront, which we actually I think we talked about this. Well, uh, Wealthfront, Wealthfront, mm-hmm. and they are a West Coast company. Uh, they are a low-cost automated investment service that helps you invest because none of us really like to think about it. None of us like to research it or decide, man, I, you know, you have that, you have that little itch in the back of your mind saying, yeah, you got to invest. You got to do something with your money. Even if you just put away 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, you'll be a multi-billionaire by the time you're 40 or whatever. They used to tell me when I first started working, I ignored them. People told you that you would be a multi-billionaire by well, the time you were 40? No, but they kept saying, invest now, invest now, put money away, put money away. And I, I never paid any attention to it. You know, I never right. did it because it was it was difficult. It was difficult. It required research. It required a lot of time. And none of that was interesting to me. And Wealthfront, I think they really, I wish they had been around then. And I'm glad they're around now. But they really get it. You know, they get the idea of like, start out with a nest egg and we're going to make this thing affordable for you. And they take like a quarter of the cost of what a traditional investment advisor would do. Their, their fees are super, super low. And, you know, like a lot of the time you're not even eligible to work with a real investment advisor until you've got like seven figures to invest. They don't even want to de- deal with that. So it becomes like good investment strategies are reserved for people with tons of money already. Well, these guys made it automated and it's not like that at all. Uh, they make it easy for anyone to get started with world-class long-term investment management. It's all online. It's all automated. It invests the money, your money for you. And uh, it takes just a couple minutes to get started. You fill out like a profile where you tell them basically based on these questions, they determine like how risk averse you are. Are you ready to like go all in and do some crazy investment? Are you more conservative because you're going to retire soon? Whatever. They'll accommodate that, and uh, and it's it's just really a really great system that wasn't just built by a couple of kids, not at all. They've got PhDs involved in this, people who really, really get this, really great software engineers, and uh, tens of thousands of people across the country have, have signed up already. They ma- now manage $2.4 billion in client access. So Incredible. Yes. They made this it. is some real grown-up sponsorship This is stuff. a grown-up sponsor. I think they, they really get who our audience is in that who is our audience very smart people really good looking people agreed agreed uh and people who uh would probably benefit from from investing and not having to worry about it and so that's what they have here well and they made a url for five by five wealthfront.com slash five by five and doing that you'll get your first fifteen thousand dollars free of charge so they won't even charge you you put 15k in there they don't even charge you they don't even care they're like come on bring it on Wealthfront.com slash five by five is the place to go to get that special 15K uh, deal entirely free. Thanks very much to them for supporting the show. And as as I know that you would understand, having recently uh, gone through uh, you know, the, this, this entire process that you've been through recently running, that you understand things like disclaimers. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and the law. And you, you yourself have become fairly litigious. Yes. So, yes, I'm, I'm suing everybody now. So, 
I must say this, for compliance purposes, I must tell you that Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read the full disclosure. Thanks to Wealthfront. Wow.com slash five by five. Do you think you could set that to music? Uh, that that little disclaimer that you read in a kind of uh, hilariously fast yeah. and monotone disclaimer reading. Could voice. you do something with that? Uh, I mean, I think I even have an app on my phone that could that could auto tune the news. It because um, we have. I mean, you're a musical guy. All that all they say is that that has to go that has to go out on the, on the show, right? They didn't say we couldn't sing it. Or we couldn't have a computer doing it or something. Well, why, why don't uh, why don't we try some different ways of doing it? We could have the radio Radiohead computer uh, computer voice right. do it, and um, you know the Stephen Hawking voice. Yeah, uh, you could send it to me, and I could uh, do a dramatic reading of it. Oh, I'll do that. Um, we could we could try and put it to music. I could sing it, sing it. Uh, folk musician style yeah sure we could we could try a lot of different uh, ways of reading that disclaimer the disclaimer that basically says that uh, the that anytime you invest your money you are at risk of losing it right yeah um what a country we live in though i you know i imagine i imagine a lot of our listeners are sitting in the ten thousand square foot home in palo alto they just recently bought <laughs> yeah uh they've never lived alone and the first thing they bought was a 100-inch television. Right. Which they mounted not above the fireplace, but in front of the fireplace because they never expect to use the fireplace. Right. And they're sitting on a beanbag chair with their game controller in their hand. <laughs> and next to them is a, a Filson bag with like uh, $2 million in, or 2 million euros in it. And the only thing on the wall is a giant poster of a white Lamborghini with a girl in a bathing suit sprawled on the hood. Right. And they're thinking to themselves, I've made it. I have all this money. I have this huge house. Now what do I do? I've got this. I've got these euros in this Filson bag. <laughs> I've got the best virtual reality headset <laughs> that I could have the tech guys at my company uh, build. Right. But there's really not that much content for VR gaming yet and you know what do i do what do i do and what what we're offering them is the opportunity to take some of that money and invest it and get involved in the larger enterprise of um of global capitalism by becoming investors owners and that's a that's a that's a great opportunity and Little by little, you know, then they're going to build an art collection. They're going to buy some furniture. Mm -hmm. They might meet someone that they fall in love with. Like this could be the beginning uh, of a of a much wider, broader life for them. Oh, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, that's tip. I mean, our typical listener uh, is probably going to be, um, well, either as I've just described, yeah, or someone working on a collective farm somewhere in the Midwest as part of a. <laughs> Uh, as part of like a religious like a commune i'm not going to say cult but like a religious organization that is into organic farming and they're all living collectively and then at night they sit and listen to podcasts uh 
around a sort of central dining establishment where they're eating scrambled eggs at picnic tables mm-hmm. in a giant hall. <laughs> and that organization too could benefit from a little bit of wise investment. You know, I understand that you have to buy seed uh, every year. Yeah. But with the money that you have left over from buying seed and from, you know, and from hand spinning your simple garments, <laughs> invest a little bit of that money. All right. And watch it grow. That's right. Oh, we're still wrapping up the spot. That's, yeah. It, just, <laughs> it feels like, you know, I'm just trying to picture our listeners. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see. A lot of people part of RV culture, Winnebago culture, RV RV drivers. Yeah, will probably be listening to the show. Some uh, some some frackers. Oh, definitely uh, frackers. Yeah, Canadian here. frackers. <laughs> uh, who else? Uh, uh, Polynesian South Pacific Islanders, of course, are going to be a big demographic <laughs> for us. Mm-hmm. Um. Hmm. Obviously, you know, NASA, uh, NASA employees have been, have been a big part of my career and I, I can only presume they're going to follow us to this new podcast. Oh yeah. I, I don't see why not. Well, if, <sighs> I would say to our listeners, if, if, uh, if, if you like the show, you can tweet about it and five by five TV slash roadwork slash one is where the, the links are. Um, I have, I have a list, a long list, growing list of topics that I want to cover with you. Mm-hmm. Um, cults and, and fracking are on the list already. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we touched on paranormal before, but I think we ought to dive into that. I want to get your take on conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Uh, hold on, page two. Uh, taxidermy, which is something that came up the other day. Spiders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spiders. Yeah, you know, Cars. The movie or cars? You, you know what? I'm going the movie too, but I was thinking vehicle, the vehicle, uh, the actual vehicles. I like it. I like it. Um, complacency. Right. We could uh, do a few shows on complacency. Yep. So anyway, I, I don't want to give it all away. There's a lot to talk Being about. Being introverted as you claim. Yeah. All right, now, you're, now you're throwing some shade on whether or <laughs> yes. not I'm introverted or not? Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. I mean, I would know. Yeah, better than than you would, right? I guess, well, maybe I guess. Yeah, we'll we'll have to we'll have to fight that out. Yep, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, keep some of these, you know, secret and surprise you with them later. Good. I don't want to give it all away right now. No, no, of course not. You don't give it all away in the first episode, right? I want. I have a long list of of people I'd like to thank. Oh, cool. uh, but you know, I can save it for I can save it for later. But you know, I'm super grateful that. People have made it all the way uh, to this to this podcast, yeah, and then all the way to the end of this podcast yeah. to hear to hear this gratitude for sure. So thank you, guys. Yeah. So we'll be back. We'll be back next week. Then. All right. All right. Have a good one, John. All right. I'll talk to you later. The, the, this is this is the most formal ending of a podcast. <laughs> I know. Ever. I know. It it's is. just like Dan. Thank you so much. Great talking to you. Yeah. I um, was. Well, I was warned. I was warned that. It can be difficult to to wrap up a, a show with you. No, no, it's a, it's next to impossible. <laughs> you have to either ring a bell, right, which is a signal that it's time for me to eat, <laughs> or or do this kind of like 
great talking to you. We're going to review uh, your submission, and we'll get back to you next week. Yeah. Thank you for your submission. All right. Great.